We're in 1 John chapter 3. Yeah, 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, if you want to look it up in your Bibles. If not, I've, I've attempted to put it on the screen, but this was a little quick. So we're going to spend one page of a three-page sermon on verse 1. Behold, John writes, uh, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. You know, this Greek word for behold is in an imperative voice, which means it's a command. It denotes something new. It denotes something unexpected. There's always a little bit of surprise when you hear the word behold. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God, everybody would have taken note. It was a command and it was caught them by surprise. Uh, Often it implies also that a change is coming. When you hear the word behold the Lamb of God, you know that when you meet the Lamb, a change is coming. In John chapter 5 and verse 14, uh, Jesus found the guy that he healed at the pool of Bethsaida. And he said unto him, Behold, again, a note of surprise with a change around the corner. Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon us. Behold, John said, what manner of love. Oh, what did I skip something here? Hmm. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Uh, I don't know how to do that. I should have had that in there. The Father is not some grumpy Gus. That is the point. He's not sitting on a throne, scowling down at us, and Jesus, the loving one. That's not how it works. This is the point. God the Father loves you with the very same love that caused Jesus to go to the cross on your behalf. You have to keep that in mind. God loves you. For God so loved the world, Jesus said. It was God's love that motivated He and His Father to come up with this plan of salvation. In fact, when Jesus came to earth, His purpose was to demonstrate the Father's love. And He said in Luke, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you know, that one verse could be a sermon or a Bible study, or it could be a Sunday school lesson. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We should not be afraid. I have a lot of trouble with that myself when I watch the news, and I find that traveling on the road is easier on my nervous system than watching Fox News. Uh, And traveling on the road is no fun. For it is your Father's good pleasure. You have to understand that His plan is to give you the kingdom. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to fear. The Father bestowed His love upon us. When we were estranged, Paul tells us, when we were at war, uh, when we were separated from God, Paul tells us that God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Uh, We were estranged because we turned away from Him, not because He turned away from us. He had every right to write us off. Just scratch a line through our name, or as as to say it more biblically, to just blot our name out of the book of life. He had every cause for me to give up and turn away and turn His back on you and turn His back on me. We had made ourselves His enemy. We gave up on Him 
not the other way around. He didn't give up on us. And Paul writes, but God commended his love toward us. And that while we were still in sin, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, he writes, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I, uh, I find it interesting that when you read the New Testament and all its messages to Christians, there's nothing in there that tells us to prepare for the wrath to come. We're saved from wrath. That is one of the, my hopes, anyway, that we will, in fact, be enraptured before the tribulation, not during and not after, as others sometimes think. For if, when we were enemies, we made ourselves enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Right now, we are called the sons of God. Now that word sons of God is the Greek word techna. And I don't know why when I learned it, there's an I in there and there must be a different form there that I didn't ferret out yesterday when I was working on this, but I learned the word is technia. And what it means is a born one. The literal translation of that is little born one. We are part of a whole new family and we are part of that family by birth. Now see, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the little born ones of God. That's a significant point. God has not just called us His children through birth in the Holy Spirit, born again, we say, Jesus said, uh, through being born again through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are in fact His little born ones, regardless of what age we get saved. He has identified, so identified himself with you through adoption that you take on his name. I am a Christian. You see that? He has so identified us with himself through birth that we become by nature like him. Just like you find yourself looking sometimes like your mom or your dad or you, you do something and it reminds you how your mom or your dad used to do things we're the exact same way now as little born ones. We find ourselves, we find our inner nature, our inner being changing slowly. And granted, it's not as fast as any of us would like, but slowly changing to conform to what Jesus was like, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We experience a new life. We experience new appetites. We experience new goals. We experience new desires. Now our desire, believe it or not, is to please Him, to obey His leadership, and we feel miserable when we don't. This, this happens instantaneously. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're in trouble. You really need to go back to the beginning. If, if, if what I'm saying isn't making sense, you need to go back to the beginning. These are the fundamentals of the new birth. Now, God's purpose in this adoption, this born-again experience, is to pull us out of this anti-God world system. John tells us in verse 1 that the world will no longer recognize us. We're actually unrecognizable to the world, and that's because it doesn't recognize Him. And, and you, you've noticed that. You've experienced this if you're saved. You've said something to someone, and they look at you like, what, what are you talking about? You know, they literally think that we're crazy. 
They think we're misled or confused. And it's because the world that they live in is a different world than the world you live in. No one has ever asked me if I believe in life, extraterrestrial life, and the fact is I do. I believe there's angels and demons and God, and I believe I've been changed from one of those kingdoms, spiritual kingdoms operating on this earth, to another spiritual kingdom operating in heaven. We were pulled out of this world Whereas once we were trapped in sin. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians, we were translated into the kingdom of his dear son. If, you, if you're a computer person, you can see this in the terms that our, our software has been rewritten into a new code and operates on a new operating system. And we have a whole new operating system that as, as a new Christian, we stumbled around trying to figure out what was going on in our lives and gradually discovered that we are different. And we're different because we're coded differently. We have a different power source. We have a different language. We have a different mode of operation, you know. If we were to go back to some of our old haunts now, after being a Christian for many years, we would find that it was somehow different than the way we remember it. And in time, we would figure out that we are the ones that are different. They're just like they always were. While the world hasn't changed, we discover as we go back to those old friends, those old places we used to hang out, that we are the ones that have changed. Now we see the world as God sees it. We look at the world and we see the corruption and when we see the decay. I, I used to see the fun in sin. I used to laugh at the things that I got away with doing wrong. But now I don't laugh. I mourn. I see the destruction that these things cause. You know, as a kid, uh, 18, 20 years old, we, we thought it was cool to go out and get drunk. Now what I see in that is incredible danger. I see the lives lost and the families broken. I see the destruction of individual families by alcohol. It's not that I'm against alcohol. I'm just against what alcohol does to us. It's, it's kind of like the law. The, the, alcohol isn't the problem. We are. We're the problem. We can't handle sin. That's the thing, you know. Beloved, in verse 2, John writes, Now we are. See, we're not waiting for some pie-in-the-sky future to become these promises or for these promises to become real for us. It's real right now. Now. Now we are the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know what's ahead, but we do know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that has this hope in Him purifies himself even as He is pure. There's this element of an unknown in this. We don't really know what's ahead. You know, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. I doubt, I doubt if Paul came down and did a PowerPoint on heaven if we could understand it. I really do. I mean, I'd like him to do that. I think it'd be cool, but I, I just don't think we'd really understand what he's talking about much of the time. But it says in verse 10, God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. Deep in our heart, we do know that the future for us has been vastly improved and that heaven is the best choice. We know that. We understand that. For now we see through a vast darkly, Paul writes, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. A lot of people make the statement, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus this or I'm going to ask Jesus that. Well, first of all, I think when I get to heaven, I'm just going to be amazed that I'm in heaven. I mean, I believe it, but when it happens, it's going to be it's going to be one of those moments, you know, where speaking is going to be difficult to begin with. And then if I actually am lucky enough to step into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be like uh, Job that said, I'm going to put my hand in my mouth and shut up now. You know, <laughs> what were those questions you had, Bob? Uh, I can't remember one, Lord, sorry, you know. Uh, but this verse kind of implies that our answers will all be given. When we get there, we'll understand. I don't think we'll, we'll need courses on it. I know I've told you this before, but my Hebrew teacher said that we would have to take baby Hebrew when we get there so we could speak. I don't believe that. I believe in spiritual gifts. Even though I'm a Baptist, I believe in the gift of tongues, and I believe the gift of tongues will be speaking in Hebrew when I get to heaven, and I'm going to be very disappointed if I have to go back and start memorizing the Hebrew alphabet. That's going to be, it's just going to be depressing. You know, now that that's the purpose. The purpose of this... The purpose of adopting us is to translate us from one kingdom into the other. And we're not talking about future. We're not talking about pie in the sky. We're talking about now, see? And the result of this adoption, am I at the right spot? Yeah. The result of this adoption, and this is how you know you're saved. The result of this adoption is we want to stay clean from sin. We don't want to stay clean. Well, we do want to stay clean from sin because we don't want to be addicted to it anymore. Whatever that failure was that we had, whatever our problem was, whatever our prevailing sin was, we're delighted that the power of that sin over us is broken. And that, that freedom that we experience in Christ, we, we really, really do not want to give up that freedom. However, that's not the main reason. The main reason that we desire to stay clean from sin is because we want to please Him. He loves us so much that we turn around and love Him back, and we do not want to disappoint Him. The main motive for my desire to be sin-free is to please Him. We actually, in time, and I can't tell you, I don't, know if, and I don't even know if people operate, I don't know if the Holy Spirit operates with people at different rates of speed. I do know every Christian I talk to has gone through these experiences, but not in the same order. He deals with what he deals with when he wants to deal with it, different from each one of us. But at the same time, everybody I've ever talked to in a serious conversation has gone through this experience that we have now become more concerned about what Jesus wants for us then we are what our friends want. Our friends now become secondary or third. Actually, they should be fourth or fifth, you know, because it should be God and then it should be our wives or our husbands or our families. And then it should be our job. Well, I guess our church third and then our job fourth and then get down to the bottom of the list. Then you get down to our friends and that's where they belong. They call and say, let's go out. Now we can say, no, I've got more important things to do. The point is we do not, the result of this adoption is that we do not want to be ashamed when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to be proud. We're all going to feel a twinge of guilt that we weren't all that we could be, but we don't want to be openly ashamed at our behavior when we meet him. Now, John writes, whosoever committeth sin 
transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And that you know he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. The word transgress is like our word trespass. It means to go too far. It means to go over a line beyond what our Father's will is. We have all experienced this as Christians. We've been starting to do something and the Holy Spirit says, no, or he says, don't, or he says, stop. If you hear, no, don't stop from the Holy Spirit, but you continue, you have transgressed. We transgress to the destruction of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It breaks our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. If we persist, we destroy our families and eventually we destroy our own society. The more we transgress the instructions of the Holy Spirit, which are, I don't want to say they are God's law, they are actually more stringent than God's law. If you obey everything the Holy Spirit tells you to do, and you don't do anything the Holy Spirit has told you not to do, not only will you keep the law, you will live a life that's more perfect than the law. That's what Jesus said was the goal. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now you'll notice in this phrase that Jesus is manifested to take away our sins. That word is iro in the Greek, and it's a primary verb. It means to lift by implication, to take up or away. Behold the Lamb of God, which I rose, lifts up, takes away, carries away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb, which taketh away the sin of the world. It's a primary verb, which means to lift. Jesus said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, I'm sorry, in John 15.1, Every branch in Him He lifts up, that they may bear more fruit. I wrote. It's the whole idea. Jesus came to lift our sin burden from us. Verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. But whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. You know, this is so black and white it confuses me. And you have to be careful with it because you can end up in trouble. But I've highlighted italicized and underlined three principal words there. And I want you to know each of these are present tense participles. They all mean a continuation of something if the person continues to abide. So I like the translation. Whosoever continues to abide in him will not continue to sin. And we're not talking about stumbling. We're not talking about losing your temper and saying the wrong word. We're talking about a continual lifestyle of sin. The idea of present continuous behavior, right? Whosoever continues to abide in him, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, for the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. For without me, separated from me, you can do nothing. Whosoever continues to abide in him, will not continue to sin. Are you having a sin problem? You need to get back into a relationship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. You need to get back to the original when you first received Christ. And He was the most important thing in your life. You need to reconnect 
with the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have the power to say no. What you're doing is you're leaving the safety of Christ and going out into a world of sin and willfully surrendering yourself to the slavery of habits that you have no business being involved in. Whosoever continues to abide in him will not continue to sin. That's what the verbs are saying. While those who continue sinning have not truly seen or known him. That's what John is saying. While we will at time to time sin, we have this promise in John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have this promise. When we fail, we go back to him and we say, I've blown it again, Lord. I'm sorry. That's all he needs to hear. I'm sorry. I repent of this. Please help me to never do this again. See, we have this promise for when we fail. Oh. But God's children, God's little born ones, do not make a habit of sinning. Yes, we fail from time to time. We feel badly. We repent. We seek his forgiveness. And we start over and over and over again. And gradually, I'm told, it's only been 50 years for me, I'm told it gets better. I'm told it gets easier, you know. Little children, let no man deceive you that he that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now, part of what this is written for is obviously new Christians, but it's also written about some theology that was prevalent in John's day that said, if your soul is saved... It doesn't matter what your body does. And John, part of what John is writing, and I think he gets into it more deeply later on in this book, but a lot of what he's writing here, this almost sounds like a Sunday school lesson, I know. But John is nailing down some very fundamental truths that apply to this this thing that, uh, well, Southern Baptists have been blamed about it for years. Once saved, always saved. That's true. I mean, once you're truly saved, you will always be saved because we're kept by the power of God. I mean, that's true. But the way it's used by many is once saved, always saved. Now I can go out and do whatever I want and I still got my ticket punched to heaven. Yeah, well, that's true too in a practical Christian sense because if you truly are born again, when you go out and do anything you want, what you want to do is to please Jesus. So, I mean, even that's true, but it's twisted by the world to think, well... I can do whatever I want in the flesh and it doesn't affect my body or my spirit. It's not going to affect me. I'll be all right because I've got my ticket punched to heaven and that's not true. So that's the point. John wants to differentiate between Christians whose lives represent the righteous indwelling of Christ and liars who say they are saved but have never met the Lord Jesus Christ. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous. Even as he is righteous, he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. And it's for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then to sort of sum it up, he writes, whosoever is born of God does not continue commit sin. For his seed, God's seed, his Holy Spirit, remains in him, and he cannot continue in sin because he is born of God. You know, I know you had this experience if you're saved that you went out after you were truly born again 
and you did something stupid that you used to do before you were saved. And the difference was, instead of getting joy in it and laughing about it, you felt miserable. You felt like you'd somehow failed terribly. And it's that sense of failure that, let, that teaches you that you've been born again and you're not who you used to be. You know, it's true we fail, but the difference is we feel miserable about it. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot continue to sin because he is born of God. In this, John writes, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. This is how you tell. Whosoever does righteousness does not righteousness. Let me go back and read it again. In this, the children of God are manifest, brought out in the open, demonstrated, seen, that in the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither is he that loveth not his brother, which connects back to the previous teaching in 1 John. So I wanted to wrap it up with this. What are the marks of true sonship? What are the marks of a little born one? And these are the, these are the four things that I pulled out of this passage of Scripture, these first ten verses. One, now we share God's nature. And what pleases God pleases us. And what hurts God hurts us. We are, in fact, connected. Second, we have an increasing desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. I never thought of it that way. I knew I was on a program to be conformed to the image of His Son, but I never really discovered the desire to be like Christ. It seemed almost, well, I don't know what the word is, offensive to say that I'm going to be like Jesus. But the truth is, we all want our lives to reflect, certainly not be like Christ, but to reflect the character and influence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also now feel badly when we do sin, and I've I've talked about that. We feel badly because we failed and we have this sense of failure, but more than that, we do not want to hurt the Father. We want to please Him. There's this new desire to do something that pleases Him. It starts with the full awareness that He's now watching me. I mean, that's where it all begins. When you first get saved and the Holy Spirit moves in, you're keenly aware that you're no longer alone. That you're actually sharing this life. Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me. What you're asking is to be possessed. Be Spirit-possessed. You're opening the door of your heart. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. We desire this. And that's what happens when we're first saved. But as we go along, we now realize how badly we feel when we do sin because we see how badly we've disappointed him. And with sin's power broken, there's no reason that we would continue in sin except our persistent stupidity and our insistence on doing our own thing. So what we have to do is guard ourselves and keep ourselves in union. Abide in me and I in you. That's what Jesus said to do. And finally, and fourth, we know that we can't continue to practice sin and remain in fellowship with God. If you find yourself comfortable in sin, any sin, you'll know that you're out of fellowship with God, regardless of what that sin is. You need to set that sin aside. You need to push it across the table and turn your back on it and walk away from it. You need to confess it as sin. 
Lord, this is a sin. And I confess it as sin. And I need you, Lord, I desperately need you to forgive me of this sin and to wash me clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what true Christianity is. This is what John is talking about. We share God's nature. We have a desire to be like Jesus. We feel badly when we do sin, and we know we cannot continue in sin and remain in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you, Father, for safe travel down, for a truck that ran all the way down and back. Thank you, Father, for keeping us safe in some of the sketchy places we stayed. Thank you, Father, for a chance to visit friends and family. Bless us now, Lord, as we go to have a covered dish supper by Lake Champlain. Please, Lord, keep the rain away so we might celebrate together this monthly fellowship supper. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. That's uh, Rick. Rick should be first, I suppose. I would say we'll do that after we sing, but the truth is I'm afraid I'll forget it, so I'm going to go ahead and pray now. Lord, we, we thank you for this time together. And we do pray especially for Rick as he sits in his hospital room Father, we ask that you give him great spiritual comfort, that you would be very true and very real to him, that he would sense your presence and know, know, Father, that you're in his life. Father, we pray for healing. If it's at all possible, we pray he'd be one of the, the tiniest of percentages that actually survive this disease. We pray, Father, that you would touch him and help him. And we pray for extra strength, Lord, for Barb as she undergoes this most difficult uh, challenge any marriage can face. Lord, we just ask that you'd strengthen her. We do pray for Rod and Barb that they would have safe travel back. I know they made it down safely. They, they're doing well. They were looking forward to a hayride, and I pray that the wedding went well and that there'll be a blessing to those around them. Lord, I pray he'll get the work done that he wanted to get done while he was there and that you'll bring them home safely. And last, lastly, but certainly not least, we pray for Mark as he tries to fill in the gap for them while they're gone. Keep him safe, help him to feel comfortable, protect him, and thank you for his newfound faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.